This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Did you read with Tim Montgomery? Welcome to another edition of Did You Read, the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery and this week I'm joined by David Aronovich, Anne Ashworth and Matt Ridley. Sometimes it's hard to grasp the meaning of an event. In the wake of the shooting down of the Malaysian airliner, almost certainly by pro-Russian separatists, it turns out that Vladimir Putin has been, in effect, waging war on his neighbour. The US claims that over 150 armoured vehicles have been given by Russia to the rebels in recent weeks. And that begs the question of why we've done so little about it. Ain't nothing going on but the rent, so long as millions of 20-somethings are concerned. However, politicians, so far as I'm concerned, don't seem to be aware of the explosive growth in the private rented sector, which is now bigger than social housing, and the need for imaginative policy in this area, which will provide more affordable homes to let. No wonder younger voters are so disaffected. We've spent years encouraging faith schools, and when a group of Birmingham schools comes along and shows us what faith schools really look like, we can hardly pretend we're horrified. We've all been assuming that Anglicanism is in the same category as militant Islamism, that they're all faith. In fact, a typical Anglican has far more in common with atheists and humanists, liberal tolerance, than he does with an Islamist determined to inject ideology into children. Well, those are our three topics uh, for today. Uh, David Aronovich, we'll start with your topic and um, the tragedy over the skies of eastern Ukraine has perhaps woken us up to what was going on on the ground in eastern Ukraine for quite some time. And we all were very exercised by the annexation of Crimea a, a few months ago. But we thought it had gone away. It we did. Hasn't. No, we did. I, 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 a few weeks ago, we were talking about how Vladimir Putin, in fact, I think only a couple of weeks ago, Vladimir Putin had apparently decided to rein back support for the separatists, that actually some areas of the Russian-Ukrainian border were being closed, that sometimes there was even talk a week ago, uh, a week and a half ago, how long ago that seems now, uh, a week and a half ago, of how the border was being closed to some of those separatists wanting to go back into Russia. In the wake of the airliner uh, disaster, 
the Americans have said that 150 or so armoured vehicles, tanks and other things, and including um, anti, uh, anti-aircraft missiles, have been sent by the Russians to separatists. Now, that effectively is a form of warfare, direct warfare, mm. against the neighbouring country of Ukraine. Yet, when those vehicles went over, I don't remember anybody saying anything about it. It's absolutely remarkable how we have blown hot and cold over this issue. And, and, and why? Because we are frightened of Russia. We are much of Europe is dependent upon Russian gas. They are so integral to the financial system now. What, why are we afraid to act against Russia? I think a number of I think a number of reasons. Firstly, because um, the form of support that Putin has been given the separatists has allowed him to suggest that he's not actually directly involved, mm. and it's suited us to a certain extent to pretend that's the case. Possibly because the Russians had been for a while given been given off contradictory ideas, and again, it suited us to want to believe that Ru- that, that Putin was acting in a way that was consistent with what we thought his own long-term interest was. That you should be so reckless, and as I said in the notebook, actually wicked, as to give this sort of weaponry to the sorts of people who the separatists in this area actually are, I think really hadn't occurred to us. Mm. Because from Putin's own position, it is an absolutely terrible error. But it's only really the terrible error that it should be if he is suitably punished as a consequence of it. And that, therefore, becomes the next question, which is, will he be? But David, Matt Ridley? David, what, what punishment can we do? That's the, the question. I completely agree that, that it's outrageous what he's up to, and I don't need much more proof, as it were, to, to know that, that it's him behind all this. But I, I, I genuinely can't see what we can do that is effective which doesn't mean i don't think we should do anything i just just wonder what it is but i suppose it depends what you mean by effective i mean one of the things that i can't understand why we haven't already done is close western airports to russian carriers i mean if they're going to effectively subsidize and support the shooting down of airliners then we should stop their airliners landing at our airports that's a that's a straight off thing that we we, that we could uh, that we could do uh, obviously i support david cameron i really miss William Hague in the last week, I must say, uh, because to hear Mr. Hammond talking about this is to see a lack of charisma personified and lack of persuasiveness personified. I mean, it's it's like having a kind of gap in the middle of the of British foreign policy. I don't know why you miss William Hague, he was foreign secretary during the whole no, period because when you were worried that this problem grew up. Because he was capable of articulating the position, really, and you could understand, understand what he was saying. Though. Well, you've got a point. I mean, you have got a <laughs> yeah. point. And it seems to me even worse now. Maybe uh, maybe Hammond will actually do more, even if he's saying less. Charisma bypass. Um, would you countenance the United States, NATO, potentially giving some form of armed support to the Ukraine, David? Because it's a, it's a pretty uneven fight. The Ukrainian army is pretty backwards in terms of its technology and its equipment. And, of course, we now know that these insurgents in eastern Ukraine have very high-tech equipment. They do have high-tech equipment, but they actually require the Russians to operate it. I mean, you can't just... I mean, this is part of the... You can't just give people high-tech and mm. uh, and expect them. So you have got some former veterans, Soviet uh, and Russian army veterans amongst that lot. But you've got an awful lot of people who really don't know anything about being soldiers mm. uh, and so on. I hope that we're giving the Ukrainians logistical support. I hope we're giving them uh, spy support. Uh, I think that any direct 
military support, unfortunately, is so... Um, uh, I mean, part of the problem we've got at the moment is, of course, that the Russian people, fed by uh, a Russian media that actually is beginning to look more and more like something out of the 30s and so on, just simply don't see things the way mm. in which That wasn't we supposed to happen in Internet age. That mm. We weren't supposed to have these um, medias telling lies to populations. But Anne, Anne Ashworth... How how worried are you by this, and how much do you think the British people, the European people, would be open to the kind of measures that might be necessary to get Putin to, to think again about his conduct? Right from the beginning of the conflict in the Ukraine, I thought that the British people failed to recognise that this was a conflict on our doorstep. They also failed to recognise and are now coming to know just the huge threat globally from hugely sophisticated weaponry in the hands of people who are not properly trained to use them and will use them indiscriminately. Mm. That is going to be one of the biggest dangers coming out of Syria. We've already seen that, but also in the Ukraine. Sanctions on Russia. I think the French need to think very, very seriously about the sale of any sort of munitions to Mm. them. But whether they will do so or not, because we've become in the last 20 years so inextricably linked by commercially with Russia that we have rather turned. We've decided not to notice the nasty bits, but only notice the good bits. That's a huge flow of Russian capital into all our nations in the form of property. Now, we might say that we would forbid Russian aircraft to land in our major airports? Would they not just pop into the private jet and land in another airport? The freedom oligarchs are global people. These Russian oligarchs, they are, they've got what they call a charm bracelet of properties everywhere. So that we would hope to hurt them by sanctions, whether we would be able to do so or not, I remain unconvinced. Matt Ridley, one of the um, your um, regular topics you, you comment on for The Times is our energy dependence on a whole range of regimes, not just Russia, but other regimes that are unattractive, to say, to say the least. This whole episode must reinforce your belief that we need to frack and become more energy independent. Absolutely. We've got to get hold of our own indigenous uh, uh, gas uh, in, since we've got so much in this country. And by the way, Mr. Putin's been campaigning about the dangers of, of fracking quite actively through I, I wonder why. things <laughs> for, for some years, which is quite interesting. So, uh, and I think, you know, one of the disappointments in this is is how how futile Angela Merkel feels, uh, mm. or sorry, seems to us uh, about this. And that's partly because they're much greater dependence on uh, on Germany for gas and as far as I know uh, Helmut Schmidt is still on the board of Gazprom and things like that you know so there's a lot more Gerhard Schroeder was it not um, oops sorry yeah, Gerhard Schroeder yeah. yeah was it yeah I can't remember and how much would if Moscow turned the gas off who would that hurt most would it Germany and other countries how dependent are they and how economically damaging would it be for Russia which is so dependent upon energy exports for its economy well uh, russia is a petro state and it would uh, pretty soon get into a frightful mess if it mm. can't sell uh, hydrocarbons to others uh, so yes it hurts them just as much as it hurts us the countries towards the east of, of europe tend to be more reliant on russian gas we tend to be more reliant on dutch there isn't a world market in gas but there tends to be a, 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 a European price in gas so it would affect all of us uh, in the end Would the lights go off in the east if 
there was uh, the energy market stopped working or do countries they have enough would, reserves? They certainly would in Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, U- Ukraine's all right at the moment because there was a mild winter and it's, it's, it's summertime and so they've got plenty of stores. And I gather what they've been doing is, is uh, building up the reserves of the storage of, of gas rather than running it down at the moment so they may be able to get through this winter you know who knows but uh yes in the end of course the lights will go out gas is an enormously important part of the electricity supply but also of course of, of home heating yeah and um, final word to you on this uh, topic uh david we're paying a price here aren't we in the west partly for that syria vote that decision not to reinforce the the red line uh, a series of dominoes have fallen over because the kremlin looked at the west and said mm, i can putin thought i can go into ukraine and there aren't going to be consequences yeah i mean I, I i don't know how absolutely strong a line i can draw but i certainly was the conclusion seems to have been drawn by people who drew draw this kind of conclusions that actually the west was in one of its states of indecision and incapacity to act and people have drawn that conclusion and i think uh, i think putin almost certainly has had that advice uh, given that he's only really listening to the advisors he wants to listen to now it was presumably the advice he gave himself good well for those of you who are listening free we are delighted to have you um, on board for our podcast for those who are Times subscribers um, and you would like to read some of the articles that Times writers have been writing about Russia and some of the other articles that provide background to the things we're discussing please do go to the times.co.uk slash comment central and you can also subscribe there to this podcast via iTunes. But our second topic, Anne, is is yours, Anne Ashworth. And you are very worried about the property market in the UK and particularly the lack of attention to the booming private rented sector. I sat last week looking at the reshuffle and I really enjoyed looking at the outfits. I'm as interested as <laughs> anybody else in what Edson McVeigh's wearing. Wasn't Philip Hammond wearing a lovely tie? Um, no, I didn't. I thought, I think the girls have raised the bar now. The guys have got to come up to it. But throughout it all, all I kept thinking is, what does any of this mean to young voters who are, we know, some of the most disaffected people in our, in our country? They don't bother to register to vote. They, if they have a vote, they don't turn up to use it, which in the case of women seems to me particularly shocking since in in human history it's only a recent thing that women have been able to vote mm. now We're why are they this suffragette moment oh yes moment, absolutely yeah. and and i started to think well now what is all this about and you think that the government doesn't speak for them these are a, a group of solid middle class homeowners who've got no idea actually what it feels like to be hutched up in a miserable poor quality rented flat Um, with no ability to save because your rent is so high and wondering where there is going to be some member of government of Mm. any of the parties actually say something about this issue. Remember that private rented sector is now much bigger than social housing and and is getting bigger every year. It will be where people live for a lot longer than they used to. That idea that you flat shared for two and a half years until you managed to scrape together a deposit and get a home, that's gone unless you can have the bank of mum and dad. Help to buy has been of some use, 
but mostly outside our big cities, mostly in the East Midlands. Meanwhile, you never hear any politician talk about how we are going to get pension funds to invest in quality rental blocks in our country, like those you see in New York, where you can live in a reasonable fashion, in nothing too fancy, with super broadband. Some of these schemes are happening, but you know they're just minimal around the edges. Why is it no politician can talk about housing? If the debate and the and the rhetoric is all around home ownership or social housing, and the, rent, the private rental sector Preta, is forgotten. And of course, in that reshuffle, um, we've now got the fourth housing minister this Parliament during Labour's. 13 years in office, we had eight housing ministers. A sector crying out for long-term strategic thinking is getting none of it. That's not a cabinet post. Not a cabinet post. Why no. is that? I'd lo- um, And you see, it would be a very, very good way for some politician to engage with 20-somethings to say, look, I know what it's like to be hutched up in a miserable flat and think I'm never mm. going to get out of here. I'm never going to have my own space. I'm never going to be able to make that investment in property. Mm. And I think there's some feeling that help to buy has been enough. It has not been enough. It's not really changing supply, is it? It's It's not really. It has had some effect in increasing the supply of new build homes. But what you want to see is you want to think about friends that come. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. ...that kept us going for all those decades. They lived in a rented flat. Yeah, and politicians have got to start thinking um, in, in those terms. Matt Ridley, can I, can I bring you in at uh, this point? The reshuffle, a lot of attention was being given to Michael Gove and his um, move was seen as interpreted by some as the government going soft on education reform. Owen Patterson's departure was seen by some as the government going soft on green groups, the lobby groups that control the countryside in red tape. There was also the planning minister was moved, Nick Bowles, a man that the newspapers have said was wanted to declare a war on the countryside. And you know, Nick Bowles was someone who has the same passion, I think, as Anne Ashworth's just displayed, someone who really wanted to solve this. And he's been replaced by a minister who many people think has been brought in to calm the issue down because there's a lot of NIMBY voters out there a year before an election that the Conservative Party doesn't want to upset. Again, a lack of long-term thinking. 
Well, I think that's. I think you're exactly right that the issue goes to to the planning system. You know, the reason why house prices go up and up in this country, and the reason why it costs an absolute fortune to start building a house before you've even laid a brick on the ground because the land costs so much, is because there is a severe restriction on supply because of our extremely creaky, laborious, and basically. Uh, preventive planning system mm. that does its best to, to stop you um, building new homes. And that suits everybody who's already got a home because it inflates the price and we all regard our houses as, as, as cash registers. Whereas, uh, as Anne rightly says, an awful lot of people want to get on the house, want to get on the rental ladder uh, and you could build prefabricated houses in this country for £20,000. Uh, they wouldn't look like those prefab houses of old. There is now sort of factory design houses that are actually exactly. very advanced looking energy neutral and da, yeah. da, da. and I was in Vancouver recently uh, which is the, the whole of downtown Vancouver is high rise uh, residential with verandas looks really nice all these condominiums etc mm. you just don't see that to the same extent here partly because we don't build high rise residential uh, and mainly because of this very very restrictive planning system as you say Nick Bowles was saying look we've got to relax the supply we can't go on being liberal about immigration and uh, still say you can't build anything mm. anywhere uh, and yet for obvious political reasons Everybody is an MB, particularly in Tory constituencies, and so uh, Nick Bowles was too. Tor- Tory councils have a particularly bad record compared to Labour councils at building. This is I'm a, not sure any are particularly. Good I think Tory countries. councils are about twice as bad as Labour councils right. in this um, area, which is why an article I wrote for for Monday's paper said that this, in a way, was as poisonous to the common good for the Conservative Party's relationship with NIMBYs as as Labour's relationship to the public sector unions. Um, David David Aronovich. Um, Matt's focused on the planning reform. Would you agree or would you, for example, think if you look at the decline in social housing, the number of the the state involvement in house building since the 1980s, do we need to look for bigger state involvement in the sector? Well, I I think it's uh, fairly obvious that there are going to be housing sectors that the private sector doesn't want to cater for for various reasons. Part of our difficulty is that we don't actually want to segregate that kind of housing from other kind of housing as well. So we actually require housing mix. I mean, most of the great social problems you get, you get as a consequence of segregation. In other words, the build-up of problems very heavily concentrated in one area. So by and large, you want to disperse uh, you want to disperse those. So we need a planning system which allows you to integrate the need for social housing with the possible possibility of building private rented housing. Now, part of the difficulty is, of course, is that there is this expectation on the part of people still that they won't have to privately rent. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't actually, contrary to what people write, an expectation of people in their mid-twenties, when I was in my mid-twenties, that you would own a house by the time you were in your mid to late twenties, it just wasn't. But, but, um, but you might people, anticipate people born it in the nineteen sixties. They had a forty-five percent chance of owning a mm. home by the time they were twenty-five. Now it's under twenty percent. You know, it has collapsed. That no, 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 no. There's, there's, there's no doubt we've gone, we've gone in reverse. But we've gone back in reverse to actually something a bit more like it used to be, rather than something we've never known Pre-war. before. I think, yeah, exactly. Well, post-war actually, but 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 uh, but but we hadn't anticipated. We'd anticipated going on this way forever and we don't have a good attitude towards private renting we think of it and traditionally we thought of it as essentially exploitative as being the areas of bad landlordism as being a waste of money giving somebody else money when actually we should be putting investing it in our own long-term future our views of property as investments i mean 
a lot of us have notions of downsizing at the point where we retire mm -hmm. so we can capitalize on the money so effectively it forms quite an important part of your kind of pension expectations yeah. and that kind of expectation is built in for all those reasons and for the NIMBY reasons the CPRE has come through today with an idea that you film an unused or take a photograph of an unused bit of brownfield site so you can prove to the government that you never need to build on a greenfield site and that's their whole that is the whole drift of their campaign just never do it here only brownfield and can, can you tackle that um issue that david's raised for us Anne ashworth because lots of people do say if only we filled the houses with people that are empty or under occupied if we built on brownfield there's no need to build on the countryside that's uh, that's a myth isn't it there isn't enough brownfield land whenever you speak to a house builder and ask them what their biggest obstacle to their operations is is securing ex-government land the process of being able to build on one of these sites is apparently so laborious and requires Kissinger level diplomacy <laughs> that you could see why they would give up. There is also facing our problem, our, our nation, this, this huge dilemma, how to make the housed see the problems of the unhoused. We have got so many people in later life with so much of their equity tied up in, in their property and unable to contemplate any diminution of it its value which mm. they think would immediately result from building in the area that they will resist it but the, but these are often grandmothers or grandparents or gra but, but, but are they not seeing that their own children are they're not, they don't have it to sit on the television. Surely they sit in their own lives. It seems as if it's one area in which we, a hugely charitable nation, cannot be altruistic. Mm. And just to combine our last two discussions, couldn't we steal some Russians' houses and reallocate them? <laughs> uh, I mean, indeed, there is some view that we maybe need to live differently. There was a very influential book book out earlier this year by Danny Dawling called All That Is Solid about saying that we didn't need to build any new houses. What we needed to use was the existing bedrooms that we have and maybe we need to change the way we live. You don't move out of uh, home after university. You go back and live with mum and dad and have an Asian style three generation house where you with your mother and father bring up your own children. Danny yeah. Dawling's kids are very young. <laughs> <laughs> well look, well, Anne, thank you. We could... Uh, talk about this a lot more but we must move on to comrade matt ridley fresh from wanting to confiscate russians houses he also wants to close down faith schools now matt ridley i don't know what's happening with times writers we've had alice thompson phil collins and now you making this argument i'm going to have to respond at some point on the pages but uh, just tell us for those who haven't read the article that you wrote for monday's newspaper why you uh, think faith schools have had their day well, we've just uh, uncovered uh, the most extraordinary piece of uh, radical indoctrination going on in, in three schools in Birmingham. Uh, and these were not faith schools. These were secular schools. But my argument is that, the, you know, and the, the gap between what goes on in a school like that and what goes on in a mild Anglican faith school is huge. Uh, and the Anglicans are actually behaving much more like the humanists. They're more tolerant, etc. But is it not a very nasty hostage of, to fortune to say that the taxpayer, whether he likes it or not, has to subsidise schools devoted to promulgating one particular faith at the exclusion of others and, in effect, uh, promulgating religious intolerance, even if it's of a mild kind? Is this not encouraging to the kinds of things? Now, we are the only... Sorry, we're one of only four countries in the world that allows segregation by religion in state schools, uh, state-funded schools. 
I'm not against uh, uh, privately funded uh, uh, religious schools at all. I think I, I'm, uh, if people want to do that, fine. But uh, what will I you give the church going taxpayer who's put their money into the tax system a refund so that they can use those well, that money to go on a private education? Because the idea that these church going parents haven't actually contributed quite a bit of money into the pot in order to have their child educated in a way consistent with their own beliefs. That's, that, 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 that seems to be a factor here. But so have I contributed, you know, and so is... So is uh, but you're not being forced to send your children to a faith school. Why should a, yeah, a religious whole, parent be forced to send their school to a secular school? The secular school is not forcing anything. The secular school will still teach religion. You're assuming that it secularism will, it will, it will is neutral in this debate. Lots of religious people and throughout motive of history was not being that secularism I'm not, was neutral. I'm, but I'm not suggesting that secular schools force... Richard Dawkins down the throats of uh, of children. I mean, someone, uh, I said in the article, a, a lay preacher complained mm. to me about the fact that Richard Dawkins forces his views on people. I said, hang on, I went to prayers every day at my school. Mm. That I had no choice in. Uh, mm. Nobody, everybody has a choice whether they read Richard Dawkins or not. There is absolutely no forcing down your throat of this. Uh, and we've got a huge humanist congress gathering in Oxford next week. Uh, big are, you, are you going, meeting. No, I'm not going. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but I'm apparently a distinguished supporter though i don't quite know what i've done to deserve that accolade uh, and um uh, probably write articles for the times uh, but um around the world humanists and atheists are being persecuted just as unpleasantly as christians are by militant islamists uh, and my point is to try and persuade quite a lot of church-going anglicans that they've got more in common with us humanists because mm. they really do believe in tolerance than they have with other so-called faith communities. It's a, it's a good argument. Then. So why aren't you really just worried about Muslim schools? You're not really... Anglican schools don't really worry you, do they? Well, I would also argue that if you look at what's happening in Christianity, it is tending to get a bit more radical and evangelical and intolerant in competition with radical Islam. Mm. And that tends to happen if you look at history. Where, where faiths compete, they tend to get more radical and, and less tolerant. One of the reasons Anglicanism became so mild uh, is because it had a monopoly. Uh, and monopolies As it becomes mild, though, the churches tend to empty. But anyway, that's another topic. Uh, Anne Ashworth, you, you, I... Hallelujah, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Anne Ashworth, what's your view on the future of faith schools? I'm sitting here absolutely dumbfounded that the problems of some schools in Birmingham should be used as an excuse to start more tinkering with the education system. I'm just going to try and look at this simply. For an awful lot of people, the local faith church, faith school, is the best option for their children where they'll be best educated. That's how they see it. Mm. And to start tinkering with all of that, just when education needs to be our focus would seem to me foolhardy in the extreme and also there is also an assumption that anyone of faith must be an extremist within that faith most people's faith is at sometimes fervent at sometimes lukewarm and most people have their doubts about their faith and so would that would be the mood within most of these schools and the problem of the Birmingham schools is one of administration at the very highest levels within that local authority, I would say. That's to do with their problems as a corporation, not to do with education or with faith. Um, that, that point, uh, David Aronovitz, that Anne's just made, that the schools in Birmingham, they didn't perform properly because, in a sense, out of the community sprang intolerance and, 
um, perhaps extreme views. It wasn't necessarily. Well, yeah, I mean, it was certainly wasn't a faith school. If I if if I were uh, if I, I've given the, the ability to choose between solving two problems, one was community segregation, which gives you schools of one faith, mm. and the problem of faith schools. I choose the former to solve. Mm. Faith schools, a very, very wide variety of different forms are, are, are covered by faith schools. Actually, let me admit an interest here. My youngest daughter goes to a C of E school where they're a bit pompous about people going to church, but she but she got in on a music scholarship. It's just one of the ways in which the middle classes of London game the system. What, why, the why were you keen for your um, daughter to go to a um, I actually, school? I didn't actually think about it in terms of faith mm. school. The school seemed to be a pretty good school. It's a comprehensive school. Uh, Did you link the the fact that it was a good school with the fact that it was a faith school? No, but um, what it can sometimes mean is that somebody in the school is thinking about what the school should be in this kind of serious way. Actually, the truth is that more and more in London, particularly more and more comprehensive, what we call comprehensive schools, academies and so on, are like that anyway. Mm. This was six, seven years ago and so on. And, up, and, and, and all that time we've seen an improvement. Like Matt, I was, I was educated, well, I was educated in a state school where also you did prayers and you did hymns. And I remember being asked by the RE teacher to draw a picture of the devil. Uh, and so on, because he had a very definite idea of what the devil looked like. And so in that sense, we were also um, indoctrinated in a non C of E, in a non-religious denomination. I've read this done neither of you two gentlemen around this table any good these religious schools. No, 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 because actually actually you tend to take these things from the home. I mean, Mm. if what's going on in the home, I mean, if what's going on in the home is to a certain extent at odds with some of the things that they teach by rote at school, you will, you you know, you'll lead, I was also brought up in a communist uh, household in an educated schools that were not communist (laughs) schools. So, you aim up. Anne makes the point that often it's the best school in the area. Well, that's tough then. If, if I happen to be a Hindu and, and the best school in the area is Anglican, then it's discriminating against me. I can't get into the best school in the area. If, if for example, that school had a policy saying we don't like people with dark skin, we wouldn't accept that. Why should there be discrimination based on religion? Okay, well, we could... Uh, go on but we're actually this is a longer than our normal podcast the topics have been so lively and so interesting and i thank you to matt ann and david for making it so thank you also to dave mcguire uh, my producer and until next week thank you to you for listening goodbye this episode of politics without the boring bits is brought to you by luton rising owners of london luton airport the uk's most socially impactful airport Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.